Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. We got a classic today. Donna, what's our episode? Today we're going to be talking about Fish Story. The air date was the 28th of May, 1979. It was written by Hugh Wilson as Raoul Plager. We're going to get into in a minute why he chose to go by a fake name, but just the name itself. Nobody knows the origin of it, where it came from, why he chose that name. So I was just curious. I ran it through an anagram generator, and the best thing I got out of like 1,800 returns was legal uproar. On the day Carlson and Travis are being interviewed by a reporter from Cincinnati Magazine, everything around them goes wrong in the silliest way possible. This is one of WKRP's most popular and most remembered episodes, but it was written kind of in a fit of anger. He said, all right, you want high humor, you want something slapstick, I'll write something. Hugh Wilson wrote it to shut CBS up about doing visual gags. And we've been talking about that throughout this season, every time we point one of those out, how CBS was always pushing Hugh for more visual gags. They wanted big slapstick bits like what was happening over on Laverne and Shirley on ABC. So Hugh said, fine, and decided to load this one up with the most cringe-worthy visual bits they could think of. He says, I want everybody to tell us, to tell me the worst cliche comedy thing you can think of. Where did that name, Raul Plager, come from? Well, Hugh said he just was so embarrassed. I kind of wrote it against my will, so much so that I didn't put my name on it. If you see the end of the credits, it says, written by Raul Plager. There is no Raul Plager. Psychologically, I've tried, I've tried to delve into Raul Plager, and I can't come up with anything. So there is a writer in the Writers Guild that gets a residual name, Raul Plager. That doesn't exist. So anyway, he puts Raul Plager at the credit. We all laugh. show airs. And uh, the audience loved it. The Hugh Wilson and cast quotes came from the short feature Fish Story Story which is available on the Shot Factory bonus disc contained in the full series box set. If you're watching along with us on the Shot Factory disc, make sure to check it out. The actors playing the painter and the pig, who you will meet later in the episode, both also had guest shots on The Tony Randall Show. Man, if it had not been for The Tony Randall Show, there would not have been a WKRP. I'm so glad they all met each other over there. Even though WKRP is still following MASH throughout this spring of 79, we can see here how they're not getting a lot of love from CBS. Our last new episode, Young Master Carlson, aired on May 7th. Then for two Mondays, WKRP was completely off on the 14th and the 21st. They did not even have a rerun in the time slot. This episode, Fish Story, doesn't air until May 28th. CBS was letting the series wind down because they didn't think it was going to be renewed. Moving it in and out of the time slot is a great way to kill a show. Let's go to the studio. We see Johnny is at the mic. He's dancing to Drinkin' Wine Spodiote by Jerry Lee Lewis. This is a fun tune. It was co-written by Jay Mayo Williams and Stick McGee. It was originally recorded by Stick McGee, Granville Henry Stick McGee, in 1947. Down in Petersburg, everything's fine. 
All them cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When you get drunk, start singing all night, drinking wine's for the you to drink wine. Wine's for the you to drink wine. Wine's for the you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Stick, and the name was singular, was the brother of blues great Brownie McGee. Brownie was a victim of polio. Stick got his nickname from the stick he used to push his brother's cart around. McGee would perform this song in the military during World War II. The live military version was pretty profane, but it was a huge hit with his unit. He recorded a cleaned-up version in 1949 that went to number two on the R&B chart. Drinking wine was what's known as a race record and is considered an early prototypical rock and roll song. Songs like this set the stage for rock and roll with a driving four-count beat and an infectious energy that makes you move. Wine's for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. The song refers to Spody. Spody was an alcoholic fruit drink, kind of like a southern sangria. If you search Spody in Wikipedia, you get redirected to the entry punch. Harry Lee Lewis. Drinking wine, Spody Think about it. Don't mind if I do, Jerry. Thank you very much. Now, the guy doing this version is Jerry Lee Lewis, who was born in 1935 in Faraday, Louisiana. He's the cousin of country singer Mickey Gilley and TV evangelist Jimmy Swaggart. Nicknamed the killer, he was a pioneer of rock and roll and rockabilly music, and he was one of the genre's most influential piano players. his breakout 1957 hits, Whole Lotta Shakin' Goin' On, Come on over. and Great Balls of Fire. Come on, baby. Run Great Balls of Fire. Jerry Lee was a ladies' man, married a total of seven times, and he had six children. His most controversial marriage was his third in 1958. He married his first cousin, Myra Gale Brown, who was only 13 at the time. Lewis claimed she was 15. He was 22 and at this time twice divorced. The controversy over the marriage sidelined his career for almost a decade. Myra filed for divorce in 1970, citing physical and emotional abuse. Despite his fame and his success, Jerry was full of anger and consumed by substance abuse. Maxim Magazine called him rock and roll's first wild man. Alcohol and drug-fueled tragedy followed him his whole life. A particular low point was when Memphis police arrested him outside the gates of Graceland in November of 1976. He drove his car through the gates of Graceland. He had a loaded pistol and a bottle of champagne. He was planning to shoot Elvis Presley. Drinking wine, Spodiote, was covered by Jerry Lee Lewis in 1971. It was not a big hit. It only reached number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100. That cat for a dollar and a It is notable because it was Jerry Lee's last single in the Hot 100. Back in the studio, Johnny announces... At WKRP, we're going to show you the effects of alcohol upon the average driver. We see the camera expand on the scene to show Venus sitting next to a highway patrol officer, R.F. Buddy Plyler, played by Jerry Harden. Jerry Harden was born in 1929 in Dallas, Texas. He began acting in the 1950s. Harden's wife is actress and acting teacher Diane Harden. Her 
students include Leonardo DiCaprio, Hilary Swank, Stephen Dorff, River Phoenix, Kelly Martin, and Christopher Masterson, among others. Jerry's daughter is Melora Hardin. Melora is a successful actress known for her role as Trudy Monk on Monk, and probably her most recognizable role, she was Jan Levinson in the American version of the comedy hit The Office. Jerry Hardin has 166 credits on his IMDb filmography as an actor that include TV appearances, Little House on the Prairie, The Rockford Files, Murder, She Wrote, Highway to Heaven, Matlock, Golden Girls, Quantum Leap, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, The Division, Family Ties, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Star Trek Voyager. Some of the movies that Jerry Harden appeared in, Big Trouble in Little China, Wanted, Dead or Alive, The Firm, and one of his most recognizable roles was on the TV series The X-Files. He appeared as Deep Throat. He portrayed this recurring character on 11 different episodes from 1993 until 1996. Johnny Drinking Himself Sober is one of the most famous B stories in all of WKRP. Many people think this story is actually its own episode, but it is a B story to the fish story. Officer Plyler is a no-nonsense guy, and he's ready to prove how alcohol can negatively affect your reflexes when it comes to driving. Plyler has on a typical highway patrolman uniform, complete with a Smokey the Bear hat and dark wire-rimmed sunglasses. According to Chessy D, our man in Cincy, this is accurate when it comes to the uniform for a late 70s Ohio State police officer. Johnny and Venus have agreed to stay on the air as long as they can. Having one drink every 15 minutes. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not a pretty job, but somebody's got to do it. It looks like they've got a bottle of Jack Daniels, but we never see the label. Venus introduces the officer, who then explains the instrument that he has brought with him. I have with me a standard... 914 automatically time reflex automator for hand reaction. It's used to test the uh, subject's motor skills. This gadget was completely made up for the show, and it doesn't really measure anything. When I shout at you, move your hand, and then I'm going to read something <laughs> off of it. Venus is wearing what appears to be a Cincinnati Reds warm-up jacket, but not quite. You can see some pilot's wings pinned to the right-hand side, but what's weird is the word across the front. It says Cincinnato. The O looks like it was created. The downstroke on the right side looks a bit thicker than on the left. We think the two cross pieces and the other downstroke were added to this jacket. We can't find any other version of this jacket or an explanation anywhere. And if you search Cincinnato jacket in Google... You're taken to this episode. Venus volunteers Johnny to go first. All right, Dr. Fever, you are presently sober. You say so? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very good. Plyler then proceeds to explain how Johnny is to begin by placing his hand on the green button, and when he says, go, Johnny is to quickly move his hand over to the red button, which is about six inches to the right. So the officer yells, Go! <laughs> which makes Venus almost fall out, out of his chair. chair. <laughs> and then Johnny very casually moves his hand over and presses the red button. According to this, uh, completely sober, he has the reaction time of a man who has had six vodka martinis. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny, he looks very proud about these results. Hey, Johnny's just cash. He's just relaxed. He he's, smiles real big. Yeah, six he's mar a... six vodka martinis. <laughs> and that takes us right into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back to the lobby. Jennifer comes walking into the lobby from the doorway that leads to the bullpen. Now, there's a painter painting on the wall that's behind Jennifer's desk. As Jennifer walks by, he winks and ogles her. She just kind of rolls her eyes. As soon as I saw this scene, I was thinking, okay, we're going for the biggest 
visual gags we can. I'm thinking about Three Stooges carrying ladders, and I'm thinking about paint falling on people. So we've got a setup here. The painter in the scene is played by a guy named Jack O'Leary. Born John Charles O'Leary, 1935, in Kentucky. He died in 1989 at only... 54 years old. Jack has 50 credits on his IMDb profile. His movie appearances include Silver Streak, Brubaker, and The Goonies. His TV appearances include an episode of Bob Newhart, The Blue Knight, and as we mentioned, he was in an episode of The Tony Randall Show in 1978. Jack looks a lot like Jonathan Winters. And he did play up his weight as an actor. His role on Silver Streak was listed as Fat Man Number 1, and he played the character Fat Jack in his episode of The Blue Knight. Andy enters the lobby and tells Jennifer that Johnny and Venus... Oh, they're doing fine. They just took the first drink. Andy tells Jennifer he's expecting a reporter from Cincinnati Magazine. Don't worry, I'll get rid of him. Now, Jennifer will get rid of him. <laughs> she's always expecting the worst, and she's pretty good at deflecting the press. We looked it up, Cincinnati Magazine magazine is a real magazine. It was started in 1967. It is the definitive guide to living well in greater Cincinnati, and it is still in publication today. Andy tells Jennifer that it's fine. He's just coming to see how the station's been doing since the format changed. And it's all looking good with the drunk driving campaign going on, the station getting painted. Actually, this is a very good day to impress a reporter. Andy walks over to Jack, our painter, who's got about a two-foot-by-two-foot area of the wall painted. He says hello and asks if he's just gotten started. No, I've been at it about an hour. <laughs> I guess he's getting paid by the hour. He's <laughs> not very motivated. It is now that we see a large fish with the letters WKRP on its chest walk through the lobby and enter Mr. Carlson's office. <laughs> Big visual gags. <laughs> Made me laugh. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Andy excuses himself from talking to the painter as he sees the fish go by. He follows the fish into Carlson's office. <laughs> and Mr. Carlson is inspecting the fish costume, looking it over really good when Travis walks in. The fish turns around and waves a fin at Travis. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, of course, a little curious. Uh, what is this? Well, what do you think? I don't know. Carlson has Herb take his head off. It's Herb in the carp suit, which means it's time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. It's a carp fish costume. <laughs> I mean, this costume is oh, awesome. You got to see this. If you've not watched the episode, I mean, a lot of times you can follow along just listening to us. You can follow the episode if you haven't seen it in a while. You've got to dial this one up and check it out. The <laughs> carp fish costume rocks. It's made of brown, blue, and pink shimmering material. And it's got tail fins that go clear to the floor, which makes it even funnier when Herb is walking. Because he's got to do this little scoot, 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 scoot. He can't really walk. It's really honestly Frank Bonner in there. And he's wearing kind of these brown slippers and then stockings up his legs or yeah. something. So, yeah, it's his little short. It reminded me of Marilyn in the dress that she wore to sing to JFK <laughs> scampering across the stage. That is how Herb is walking through the station. It is a great costume. And every so often up by the gills, that's got this flowing material. And down on his belly, he's got some flow material that are like some fins oh, it's super, or something. super detailed. One of our greatest fashion alerts ever. Now, both Hugh Wilson and Casey Petrowski have told us in no uncertain terms that KRP in the call letters means crap. That was the joke. That's why those letters were chosen. Now, according to Art Carlson, avid fisherman, KRP spells carp. Carp's a fish. <laughs> this is our station mascot. Did a little research on carp. Carp refers to a very large group of freshwater fish native to Europe and Asia. Carp are consumed in many parts of the world. Carp are considered an invasive species in parts of Africa, Australia, and most of the United States. Yeah, we've got them invading around here. Goldfish and koi are popular ornamental fish or pets that are descendants from carp. So when Andy asks why he wasn't told about this, Carlson explains that he's the station manager. He can have a few ideas of his own. I'm sending him over to the University of Cincinnati for a pep rally. And you remember the last time Art had an idea of his own, he started whipping turkeys out of a helicopter. <laughs> right. <laughs> Andy's not too thrilled about this idea. You know, of course, there's a guy from WPI 
AIG going all over Cincinnati in a pig suit. Carlson explains that radio is a competitive business and you need to fight fire with fire. Well, look, Herb, just don't get into any trouble, all right? Ah, uh, here comes Les. He says hello to Mr. Carlson and Andy. He seems to know that's Herb in that fish costume. He does his little s- laugh. <laughs> yes, the snake laugh. Herb turns and asks, what's so funny? Well, I just always pictured you more as a, a blowfish than a carp. <laughs> that was pretty good for Les. Yeah, that's not bad for a, for a Lesism. Oh, and hey, did you check Les? And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye Newshawk Award winner, Les Nesman. This is the Les Nesman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nesman. Right hand pinky finger. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nesman. Now we noticed at the top of this episode we didn't have Emily Marshall, which means we're probably looking at an episode that was shot before the break. So we're back at that time where Les was working on all of the digits going through his oh, hands. We're right. back on the pinky finger. Remember we were working okay. all the way through the fingers. I think we got back now in his <laughs> finger era. Well, Carlson reminds Les that this is serious business, and Bailey enters the office. She's looking for Herb. She's there to deliver some advertising copy to Herb. Les, would you mind going over to the university with Herb and Les, you know, sort of keep an eye on him? She's not really thrilled, but she says, okay, she'll go. So Les is ready. He's carrying a box with some promotional materials for the station in it. Looks like there's like a banner and some posters. They're ready to go to the pep rally. Jennifer enters Carlson's office totally un phased by the guy in the fish suit. She walks right past Herb with a message for Andy from the reporter. Well, Herb stops her on the way back out. Hiya, gorgeous. How about a couple of drinks after work? Sorry, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Charlie. Do you remember those commercials? Oh, oh, yeah. I remember. Oh, remember. I love those things. There were 85 of them. Charlie was the spokesfish for Starkist Tuna. Starkist presents Charlie the Tuna. He was created in 1961 by the Leo Burnett Advertising Agency. And as you said, he appeared in 85 different commercials until the mid-1980s. See my good taste, Starkist? But Charlie, Starkist don't want tunas with good taste. Starkist wants tunas that taste good. Sorry, Charlie became a popular American catchphrase in the 1970s because of the Starkist ads. Charlie was a tuna who believed that that his hip-cultured good taste made him a perfect catch for Starkist. But the announcer always rejected him. Hey, Sorry, Charlie. Only good-tasting tuna get to be Starkist. Charlie, weirdly, is a fish trying to get caught when he's passed over. Usually in the TV commercials, a hook would come down with a Sorry Charlie sign on it. April 6th is Sorry Charlie Day, a day to recognize that everyone gets rejected sometime in his or her life. Sorry, Charlie. Okay, it's time to head back to the bar, or I mean back to the studio. It's now <laughs> Venus's turn to test his reflexes. Officer Plyler yells, Go! <laughs> Plyler tells Venus that two drinks have had very little effect on him. Hey, you're talking to the man here. <laughs> a couple little drinks don't mean nothing to the trap. But Venus is getting drunker than he thinks, and Tim Reed <laughs> is doing a great drunk Venus. The trap. Officer Plyler tells him that even after one drink, his reflexes slowed almost 10%. No. <laughs> When Venus says no, he almost swallows the mic. Drunk Venus is great, and it gets better as he gets drunker. He's hilarious. He is funny. Officer Plyler reminds them that the point of the test is... People think that they're sober enough to drive, when in fact they're not. Now it's Johnny's turn again. Don't you say start or now or something like that? (laughs) Go! I think Officer Plyler is getting a little tired of Johnny already. He checks his score sheet, and he says that now, after two drinks... You now have the reaction time of a man who's had five vodka martinis. (laughs) Hold on a minute. Five vodka martinis. He is actually getting better at this. Right, because the first time it was six. Six. Now he's gone down by one after having a drink. I'm getting better. Now we're going to the University of Cincinnati campus. We're going to see what's happening there. This scene opens up with an outside shot of a building with a sign in front that says, University of Cincinnati, founded 1819. 
University of Cincinnati is the second largest university in Ohio behind Ohio State. The building used at the start of this scene was built in 1925 and named Alfonso Taft Hall after President William Howard Taft's father. The WKRP shot is what it looked like in 1979, but don't go looking for it on the campus today. This building was gutted and expanded in 1982. The newly designed building still houses the UC College of Law, but it no longer retains the old Taft name. One of the reasons they needed to gut and expand was because the college was going to lose its accreditation with the American Bar Association if they didn't expand the physical space. So instead of moving or building a new building, they used the old one for the basis and expanded it to triple its original size. Thanks to Chessie D, our man in Cincy, for this information. Let's go to the bathroom. (laughs) Let's head into the men's room. There are some uncredited actors that were listed in IMDb. They listed four actors, but when we watched the show, we counted five. We very definitely had five different people moving around through the men's room. Now, we have names. These are from IMDb, and all but one, their only credit is WKRP in Cincinnati. We've got one of them that's also credited with the Betty White Show, which kind of indicates to me that this is probably some kind of a gopher on the MTM lot who they pulled in to be an extra in this shot. But the names that we got, we've got student number one is Michael Carp. Pita. Student number two, Fred Fisher. Student number three, Marty Helfond. Student number four, Francis Sermler. And it is quite possible that somebody just got on IMDb and put their friends' names in there. We have no idea. But those are the names we were given. Now, we did count five different uncredited non-speaking actors in the bathroom. The guy <laughs> in the t-shirt with yes. the porn movie mustache... <laughs> That dude does not look like a college student. I think somebody needs to check his ID. The porn movie mustache. Yeah, it's pretty serious. (laughs) We see Herb entering the UC men's restroom, and of course he's in his fish costume. There's a guy drying his hands and another guy standing at a mirror combing his hair. These guys have the late 70s, early 80s hair and super huge bell-bottom jeans. If you could ring those jeans, you could hear them for miles. Those <laughs> things are bells. I bet they were really heavy when oh. you took them out of the washer and they're oh. wet. Remember wearing bells like getting them in when you walk through a puddle? Oh, yeah, because they were always drug on the ground. They would soak up to your knees, and then they'd weigh about 20 pounds <laughs> from your knees down. We've also got a guy wearing a full band uniform, including the hat and a sousaphone, walks by. Herb is saying, hi to all of these guys. Hi, how's it going? But they ignore him. I mean, they don't really want to talk to a fish, I guess. And they leave. Herb's None of them seem too interested in talking to a giant fish. Herb's doing shtick. How's school? <laughs> Get it? How's school? <laughs> All right, so Herb goes over to one of the stalls and he tries to open it, only to discover that these are pay toilets and he needs a dime to get in. Then we get the visual comedy as he crosses his fins in front of him. And it's they're these big, long fins, and they're, un, they're a contrasting color to the rest of the suit. So it's really obvious when he does this. And then he starts dancing a jig over to the door, and he opens it. He's yelling for less. He's yelling for anyone who might loan him a dime. <laughs> Toilets. Now we've had an encounter with pay toilets before when we were in Europe. Yes, that's one of that's the only time I think I've ever seen a pay I've toilet in my life. I have ever been in a pay toilet here in the United States. The earliest pay toilets in history were erected in ancient Rome in 74 A.D. during the rule of Vespasian. 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 Vespasian? After a civil war greatly affected the Roman financial scene. The first pay toilets in North America were installed by Walt Disney. Surprise, surprise. Of course. In 1936 at Walt's, which was a popular cafe on Hollywood Boulevard. And it was the first restaurant ever to be run by an animation studio. Pay toilets spread across America and were soon common sights in almost all. All the major cities. Pay toilets were never meant to make a profit, just to defray the cleaning and supply costs. It was presumed that the dime or the quarter that was the entrance fee would motivate the users to keep the stalls clean. 
Well, that didn't work. Bathrooms with paid toilets often got trashed by patrons. And, no surprise, the coin boxes got smashed. Something wrong here. Women's groups filed several lawsuits against municipalities that operated paid toilets. Paid toilets were sexually discriminatory, they claimed, because women, unlike men, were forced to pay to urinate. Hmm. Hmm. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> In order to battle the scourge of pay toilets, a group called CEPTIA, the Committee to End Pay Toilets in America, was formed. That just sounds like a joke. Yeah, <laughs> I think it might have been. Haven't you heard about the UBAMDTDJ of A? Saturday Night Live yeah. skit or something. In 1973, Chicago became the first city to ban pay toilets. Yay, Chicago! A group of homeless <laughs> people in New York claiming that not being able to find a place to relieve themselves caused them problems and pain, and I would agree with that statement. New York banned pay toilets in 1975. Governor Ronald Reagan banned pay toilets in California, and they were almost obsolete in America by the end of the 1970s. There probably weren't any pay toilets still in use in the United States when this episode aired. But pay toilets can still be found in countries such as Mexico, Taiwan, France, Sweden, Germany, Colombia, and Singapore. Back to Herb trying to figure out how to go to the bathroom when he doesn't have a dime. Well, what anyone who is desperate would do crawl under the stall door. <laughs> Only we get the visual of a human-sized fish on its belly backing under a door using its fins to push, push, push under. I remember very vividly from the first time I ever saw this episode, the first thought I had was, oh, he's laying on a bathroom floor. <laughs> As Herb is working his way under the door, the door in the next stall opens, and who should appear? It's the mascot from WPIG that Andy mentioned in Art's office. The pig. <laughs> The pig mascot is played by Lee Berger. Lee was born in 1918 in Brooklyn, New York. He passed away in 2007. He began his career in 1936 as an understudy to Danny Kaye in the Broadway production of Lady in the Dark. His television debut was with James Dean in a live TV production, and they used to do these as a theater on TV, called Thunder on Sycamore Street. Lee is a World War II veteran, and he was in charge of entertainment services for soldiers serving in North Africa. He has a look to him where this fits. He had roles both on Dynasty and Falcon Crest. He has 76 filmography credits, including a Star Trek The Original Series episode in which he played Abraham Lincoln. And you said you remember that. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I've got Star Trek The Original Series on DVD. I've watched that within the last couple of years and seen him. He is a tall guy. I could see him doing Abraham yeah. Lincoln. Yeah, and he does a nice job. He's got the diction and the voice and the presentation, and he really comes across well. The USS Enterprise is honored to have you aboard, Mr. President. Strange. Where are the musicians? That's taped music, sir. A starship on active duty never carries an honor detachment. Taped music, you say? Well, perhaps Mr. Spock will be good enough to explain that to me later. He also appeared in several stage productions, including a revival of Man of La Mancha. He retired from acting in 1989. The pig asks Herb what he thinks he's doing. <laughs> Herb says that he ran out of change, and he asked him to hold the door. Well, of course, the pig slams the door shut. We have run into WPIG a couple of times now in the series, but we have not stopped to recognize the importance of those call letters. WPIG is recognizing Cincinnati as Porkopolis. <laughs> Starting in 1840, Cincinnati became known as Porkopolis due to all the pork processing happening in the city. A byproduct of pork processing is pig fat, which is used in making candles and soap. Two brothers-in-law from Cincinnati named William Proctor and James Gamble 
teamed up to make ivory soap out of the pig fat. Hmm, Procter and Gamble. Yeah, they went on to become the largest manufacturer of personal care products in the whole entire world. Pigs were everywhere in Cincy. Prior to the railroad, drovers would drive hogs right through the city to the slaughterhouses. Oh, that's awful. In the 1970s and 80s in Cincinnati, there was a battle on between those folks who really liked the name Porkopolis and wanted to really adopt it and keep it as a moniker for the city, and others who just wanted to forget all about it. The city dedicated Bicentennial Commons in 1988, commemorating Cincinnati's founding in 1788. The Commons features four-winged pig sculptures dedicated to all the pigs who gave their lives for the <laughs> growth of industry in Cincinnati. The winged pigs. And Chessy sent us pictures. We will post them on the Facebook page of the winged pig sculptures in Cincinnati. I don't think it was their choice no. to give their lives. No, it's not like, <laughs> like they ran to the slaughterhouses on their own. Oh, most recently, Cincinnati seems to be embracing its pig roots. They even named their regional marathon the Flying Pig. And thanks to Chessie D, our man in Cincy, for tracking down the info on Porkopolis. You owe somebody 10 cents. Back in Carlson's office, we've got Art now playing with a yo-yo when Andy enters with the reporter from Cincinnati Magazine. Travis introduces Mr. Carlson to Quentin Stone, which I think sounds like an amazing <laughs> soap opera name, Quentin Stone. Carlson shakes hands with Mr. Stone and he gets the yo-yo all tangled up in his fingers again. More visual gags. Quentin Stone is played by M.G. Kelly. Born Gary D. Sinclair in 1952 in Ada, Oklahoma. He's known professionally as Michael Gary Kelly. American actor, disc jockey, and radio personality. He used Machine Gun for his air name, playing off the initials for Michael Gary. The name is a reference to George Machine Gun Kelly, the infamous Prohibition-era gangster from Memphis. He's a real deal L.A. DJ. He worked all over town, but he was on KHJ for a while. You might remember... KHJ is the original boss format radio station we discussed in our prologue. Kelly was also an offstage announcer on two game shows, including doing a year on Wheel of Fortune announcing what you've won. Ooh, if you filled your truck up with cash, how much would it weigh? MG! <laughs> Solid as your concrete truck here, John. $25,000. You're going for it. Kelly's a DJ by trade, but he did dabble with some acting. His filmography includes, in 1976, The Enforcer and A Star is Born. In 1978, he had The Fifth Floor and The Buddy Holly Story. He also appeared in UHF, Turner and Hooch, and Lobster Man from Mars. Art tells Stone that a mention in the magazine would really be important to WKRP. Well, this is not a PR piece, you know. This is an in-depth story I'm doing here. Carlson asks Andy and Stone to pull up the chairs so they can start talking some radio. Back in the U of C campus bathroom. Les enters the restroom, only to find Herb and the pig, both with their headpieces off, glaring at each other. Les explains that he and Bailey were going to go get something to eat, and he wanted to know what Herb would like. A ham sandwich. <laughs> what do you think of that, Mr. Pig? Well, you can't get anything past. Newsman, Les Nessman, always alert, always on top of things. Say, aren't you the WPIG pig? <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> yeah. I'm Les Nessman, two-time winner of the Buckeye Newshawk Award. I sometimes listen to your news reports when I need a laugh or two. Les's friendly disposition quickly changes when he hears this, and he hands the box of promotional materials to Herb. He takes his jacket off, and he's getting ready to fight. I'll take it easy, Les. Now, he doesn't mean anything, Les. Les tells the pig to get him up. Les strikes a pose that strikes me as very early 20th century pugilistic. <laughs> Herb is putting himself between them. Now, can we please act like adults? Get your fin off me. The pig knocks the box out of Herb's <laughs> fins. Big visual gags. <laughs> I remember in Star Wars, they would always do this trick where they'd have a shot filling the screen of a, like a ship would be floating along in space. And then a gigantic bigger ship would come over the top and just completely dwarf the one that you were looking at initially. <laughs> That's like the gags on this episode. They just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
bigger. You know, they could have done like the old Batman show and had the pows and, and the, the zowies and yeah. bops. <laughs> That's showing my age, isn't it? <laughs> Take us back to Carlson's office, dear. We head back to Carlson's office where Art is explaining to reporter Stone how the transition and the format went pretty well. Things are moving along smooth as glass. He gives a lot of credit to Andy, but... I keep my hand in there, of course. Stone asks Carlson, okay, how how is it you keep your hand in it? Public relations, community relations, station promotions. I mean, you know, I handle all the rough stuff. When Stone asks for an example, Carlson says that he was in charge of the station's Thanksgiving promotion and... Then it was rather interesting. You accidentally killed some turkeys, didn't you? Why does Art keep bringing that up? He keeps bringing <laughs> that up. Yeah, as if he's hoping nobody would remember. Or that it's somehow now in people's mind's eye, it's now a good thing. It's become a positive <laughs> in retrospect. Andy admits to Stone there have been a few minor mistakes along the way, like, you know, those people we bombed with turkeys. But this is very basically <laughs> a professionally run radio station. Hey, right, folks. <laughs> on cue, the door opens and a very drunk Venus walks in. I love the way he waves. He does like a, a, a five finger like you're scratching a back or something. And his eyes as he walks across the room and notices how bright it is in there. Sure is bright in here. Venus's shirt is untucked. You know how together Venus oh, always looks. Venus always looks like he walked Sharp. right off a magazine cover. Well, and his now... shirt's untucked and he's staggering around Carlson's office. <laughs> and Andy quickly explains. Venus is one of our DJs. He's now involved in the uh, drunk promotion. I, I think calling it the drunk promotion is a little vague right, on Andy's right. part. He should have explained it a little more. Well, Venus is slurring his words. He's getting right down in the reporter's face when he talks. From Stone's reaction, it's clear that Venus's breath reeks of alcohol. Yeah, but I ain't drunk. More smell-o-vision. <laughs> I was smelling it. We got some smell-o-vision. Carlson asks Venus what they can do for him. I want a hat. <laughs> he wants a hat. <laughs> Cops got a hat. <laughs> here comes here comes the next bigger ship dwarfing the ship where we were. It just keeps getting bigger. Cops got a hat. I want a hat too. Carlson says he has a fishing hat that Venus can use, and Venus is very happy about that. I thought so. <laughs> he does this little move. He sits on the arm of Art's rolling chair and rocking chair, and it moves backwards and starts to rock back. His eyes get wide. Just a <laughs> Fantastic move. So Carlson hands Venus the hat, only it's not just any hat. It's a hat with a super extended visor bill. Venus puts it on and stumbles to the door to leave. He turns around with his long bill on, and it is hilarious. hilarious. It's great, that long bill just kind of flapping. The reporter is curious. Are you on the air here? On the air? I am the air. I'm the wind. He is the air. <laughs> Drunk Venus is a hoot. We jump back to the bathroom. Herb and the pig are going at it. <laughs> Les is trying to pull Herb off of the pig when Bailey enters. You can't come in here. This is the men's room. Well, I know that, Les, but you wouldn't come out. Bailey, girls aren't even supposed to know what these places look like. <laughs> I love it the way Les is covering his eyes. He doesn't want to make eye contact with <laughs> Bailey because she's in a men's bathroom. Yeah, it's like she's going to see something <laughs> horrible. The pig takes this opportunity now. The distraction of Bailey gives the pig an opening, and he jumps on Herb's back. They both go down. Now you've got the pig on top of Herb. Herb reaching up, hitting him in the back. Les, he picks up some of the rolled-up posters, and he starts beating on the pig, who continues to hit Herb, who's Face down on the floor, and the pig is straddled on top of him, and Bailey is yelling. This is when everything reaches a fever pitch, and the door to the bathroom opens. A security guard walks in, puts his hands on his hips, stares at them. They all stop except for Herb's fin, which keeps reaching up and hitting the pig in the stomach. I don't think Herb knew that somebody walked in, because he's face down on on the floor there. We have to address... A bit of urban legend that has come up around this scene. If you look at both the IMDb trivia section 
and the Wikipedia list of Stephen Wright's filmography, both of those very respected sources of information will tell you that Stephen Wright plays the security guard in Fish Story. We don't believe this to be true, and here's why. Stephen Wright graduated Emerson College in Boston in 1978 and then started doing stand-up in Boston from 1978 to 1979. He was not in L.A. when this episode was shot. He was across the country. They're also very different physically. The security guard is tall and thin with blonde, curly hair, clear skin, and a strong jawline. Now, Stephen Wright is pretty tall. He's 5'11", but he walks with a slouch. He has a mole on his left cheek and dark curly hair. Stephen Wright appeared for the first time on Johnny Carson in 1982. According to Johnny's introduction... This young man is from Boston. It's his first, first appearance on national television. And uh, I think you're going to find him a little different. Would you welcome Stephen Wright... And then Stephen Wright sat down on the couch and he said... Is this your first time on first national time television? On national television, yes. Yeah. That was in 82. So he could not have been in this 1979 episode of KRP. We're calling this one an urban legend. <laughs> this one is much like the inaccurate story that Richard Sanders sang the theme... This one is not true, and somebody needs to get on Wikipedia and IMDb and change that. So that's that. Yeah. Back to the studio, Johnny is looking alive, and he's on the ball while Venus is dancing around (laughs) very drunk. Officer Plyler does not look happy at all. And the song, I'm Tore Down, by Freddie King is ending. I'm Tore Down was first recorded in 1961 by Freddie King. Benny Turner, Freddie's brother, also recorded this song with special guest Otis Clay. And it appears on his 2017 release, My Brother's Blues, a tribute to Freddie. Eric Clapton recorded I'm Tore Down for his highly successful 1994 blues tribute album, From the Cradle. When I'm torn down, almost level with the ground. When I'm torn down, almost level with the ground. Yes, I feel like this when my baby can't be found. Went to the river to jump in, my baby. Venus and Johnny are on their sixth drink, and Officer Plyler suggests doing the test one more time. Do it again? Sure. Go! Venus is having a ball watching Johnny. Plyler is dumbfounded. He is hitting the machine and saying that this is impossible. Hey, Johnny, turn pro. Forget the Olympics. <laughs> Venus. I'm sure Venus's commentary is not helping things. <laughs> turn pro. <laughs> so Plyler's getting really, really upset. He grabs the mic and yells into it. This has been given to hundreds of people. No one ever got better. Plyler grabs the bottle of whiskey and he tells Johnny, drink. Johnny tells him it's not time yet. I am ordering you to have another drink. (laughs) (laughs) So Johnny's not going to turn him down. He pours himself another drink. Venus holds his glass over for Johnny to pour him one. I propose a toast to law enforcement everywhere. Tyler is very frustrated and becoming very angry. Pointing to Venus, he begins to rant. Now this man here... uh, Venus! uh, uh, Yeah. (laughs) This man here was affected immediately. Uh, uh, That is normal. That's me and you swap hats. (laughs) Venus takes the officer's hat, puts it on his head, while he places the fishing hat on Officer Plyler's head. This doesn't faze Plyler at all. He is so into ranting. He continues, saying that Johnny has built up a, a superhuman tolerance to alcohol. Yes, it's true. It was once sort of a hobby. You've got Plyler sitting there looking very intently at Johnny with this giant bill off this fishing cap. And Venus gets up right next to him wearing <laughs> the smoky bear hat. And he says, I'm a little suspicious, too. <laughs> 
suggest you shoot this man. At least wing him. Fire at will. Fire at will. So Tyler tells Venus to just shut up, and he turns around and tells Johnny to keep drinking, where Johnny pours himself another drink, and he's making Plyler mad. He says, I'm not going to get drunk. He's from Mars, officer. Whiskey does not affect alien beings. Well, this is where Plyler realizes that Venus is wearing his hat and that he's got the fishing hat on. He takes it off and he grabs his hat off of Venus's head. He is just so mad. And this is why people think this is the A story for this episode. It's just so funny and it keeps going and going and going. So Johnny kicks into Blue Collar Man by sticks as the scene ends. Blue Collar Man is the first single that Styx released from the Pieces of Eight album in 1978. Blue Collar Man reached number 21 on the Hot 100. Currently, it's number one on WKRP in Cincinnati. It was also played in the Johnny Comes Back episode. is an American rock band formed in Chicago in 1972. Twin brothers Chuck and John Panazzo and their friend Dennis DeYoung were the core of the group. Hits such as Lady, Lorelei, The Grand Illusion, And come sail away. Come sail away. Come sail away. Come sail away with me, lads. Showcase the band's progressive rock sound. Guitarist Tommy Shaw joined the group in 1976. His first contribution as a songwriter was the song Crystal Ball, which became a minor AOR hit for the band. has sold over 54 million records worldwide. Hey, Daddy, turn pro. Forget the Olympics. In Carlson's office, Andy is explaining to the reporter, Stone, that a lot of stations do the drunk thing. He really needs to explain that more. <laughs> he needs to be a little more a little more specific about stuff. Jennifer rushes into the office. There is a slight problem. She suggests that they adjourn to the lobby to discuss it, while, of course, Quentin's ears perk up. He asks if it's something they'd rather he not hear. We have no secrets here. Uh, Jennifer, go ahead. So Jennifer tells them that Herb is in jail, and they've arrested Les also, and Bailey too. Excuse me, I have to start writing some of this down. (laughs) This is really embarrassing, but Art asks what they arrested Bailey for right in front of Mr. Stone. Something about hanging out in the men's restroom. And we get a weird little continuity error with the pencil here. He had been writing with a pencil that he took out from over his ear, and then when we cut back to him right here, he pulls it out of his breast pocket like he's just getting the pencil from there. It disappeared from his right hand magically or something. came out of his pocket, yeah. Mm -hmm. Carlson said that he's going to go bail them out, and he asks Travis to show Mr. Stone around. Listen, why don't we talk about this in my office? Carlson realizes he's going to need some cash for bail, so he comes back in and asks Andy. Well, I only got about five bucks. Jennifer steps up and says, how much do you need? Oh, gee, what? I don't know, really. I'd imagine around $500. I'll get my purse. In 2020 dollars, Jennifer would be carrying around about two grand. Oh, just a little pocket money yeah. there. In the lobby, the painter is still painting in the same spot as before, and the area that he's painting on, it has not changed at all. Keep that gag going. <laughs> 
Jennifer's at her desk. When Johnny walks into the lobby, he's walking kind of slowly, but doing okay. I uh, thought you'd be drunk by now. No, but this is my sixth trip down the hall. I think he's walking slowly because he's got to go. Yeah, he's needing to hit the little boy's room. Well, the painter approaches Jennifer and explains that, uh... The little lady and he have an arrangement. She knows I mess around a little, but she figures, <laughs> what the heck? I'd rather share him than lose him. I'm sorry, I bet Jerry's a nice guy and all, but that's kind of gross. Yes, I think so. Well, if we ever got together, I'd have to have all of you. Well, the painter is speechless after Jennifer says this. She tells him to think about it. And he looks at her and he's kind of a little confused, but he says, okay. And he goes back over to his spot. On the wall. It was a gutsy tactic on Ms. Marlowe's part, but she definitely shut him down. <laughs> I think shocked him. We head back to Andy's office where we now have reporter Stone and Andy sitting on the couch there in Andy's office. Stone asks, why the news director's in jail? For some reason, Andy starts making things up. Uh, perhaps he withheld a source. Stone says, well, that's not going to explain why the sales manager's in jail with him, and Andy keeps making things up. What if the sales manager went down to the jail trying only to bail out the news director? And then Stone asks, why is the lady in the restroom? Well, this one stumps Andy. Why was the lady in the news room? <laughs> Why don't you just tell me the truth, Andy? Stone can tell he's lying. Even when Andy says he's going to tell the truth, he's not telling the truth. Of course, you've heard of the Central Intelligence Agency. And the CIA is the Central Intelligence Agency, the Civilian Foreign Intelligence Service of the United States. And we've been informed by the CIA that that's all we can say about the CIA. turn to the lobby where we see the pig mascot walking in carrying his costume head. He walks over to Jennifer and asks to see the station manager because he has a complaint. Jennifer tells him the station manager's not in. I think that's just her standard response. No, he really isn't. He went to bail them out. Oh, that's right. He went to bail them out. I forgot he's not there. She's actually telling the truth. Okay, I forgot about that. All right, so then he asks for the program director. Jennifer tells him that he's going to have to wait because the program director is in a meeting. And that's the truth, too. Yeah. So the pig goes over to where the painter is painting and tells him... You missed a spot. The painter asks if the pig wants to do it. At first, the pig says, no, thank you. But then you see an idea come into his head. I would be delighted. We keep getting bigger and bigger, and I think maybe here's where we've kind of pushed it over the edge. The pig now takes the paintbrush. He's cackling about his plan here. He dips it in the paint. Suddenly he has found red paint, and he starts to paint the letters P-I-G on top of the W-K-R-P on the wall. We've been watching this other guy paint with kind of a gold paint all morning, and all of a sudden now we've got this red paint. Well, Johnny comes walking into the lobby. He spies the pig now painting pig on the wall. Johnny is just fine until he sees this. He then decides he's got to be drunk. He staggers back towards the door, heading back to the studio. He braces himself on the door jam, seeing that pig has convinced him he's drunk. Back in the studio, Officer Plyler is standing very stiffly with a grumpy face. He's not a happy camper. Venus is sitting in a chair, feeling very good. The fishing hat is on backwards, and he is singing If I Didn't Care. By the ink spots. If I Didn't Care is a monster of a single. There have been a number of versions of this song. It was written by Jack Lawrence and originally recorded by the ink spots in 1939. The ink spots version of this song is considered the 10th best-selling single of all time. It's sitting right behind We Are the World at number nine. If I Didn't Care sold over 19 million copies. It is one of fewer than 40 songs in history that have sold more than 10 million physical copies. It's in the Grammy Hall of Fame and was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress. If I didn't care More than words can say If I didn't 
Toppers, Connie Francis, Bobby Vinton, The Moments, David Cassidy, and The Platters have all had hits with If I Didn't Care. The group disbanded in 1954. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989. We watched a YouTube video of them singing this song, and it is a great video. They're smooth. They're smooth, and the guy that sings the high, high, high tenor is awesome. Would all this be true if I didn't care for you? Johnny returns to the studio and he finally admits. <laughs> I'm drunk. Oh, I knew it. I just saw a giant pig. Suddenly, he's slurring his words, he's having trouble walking, Officer Plyler is thrilled. Now he's ready to do the test again. Johnny sits down at the mic, and we hear him turn up the monitors so he can outro one of the most perfect possible songs he could be playing right now, the Alabama song by The Doors, also known as The Whiskey Song. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. is by the American rock band The Doors. It appeared on their self-titled debut from 1967. The lyrics were originally a German poem, which were translated into English in 1925. It has also been recorded by David Bowie. Keyboardist Ray Manzarek plays a marxophone on the song. The marxophone is a fretless zither. Plyler asks Johnny if he's ready for the test. Johnny says he is. Plyler gives him another go. Impossible. How did I do? Play a record. Play a record. Johnny begins the song Light My Fire by The Doors. It's also on the same album as Alabama Song. The song was released as a single. It spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. If I was to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. As of December 1971, it was the band's best-selling single with over 927,000 copies sold. Light My Fire was performed live by The Doors on The Ed Sullivan Show broadcast on September 17, 1967. The Doors were asked by the producer Bob Precht, Sullivan's son-in-law, to change the line, Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Higher, because of the implied drug reference. The band agreed to change the line to Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Better. During the live performance, of course, lead singer Jim Morrison sang the original unaltered lyrics. No way Jim is going to knuckle under for the man. Well, Ed Sullivan was mad. He did not even shake Morrison's hand as Jim left the stage. After leaving the stage, they were told, You'll never do the Ed Sullivan show again. Morrison's quite famous response was, 
Hey man, we just did The Sullivan Show. The song Light My Fire is ranked number 35 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest rock songs of all time. In 1993, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Lyler grabs a bottle of whiskey and drains it himself. Play a record. We head back to Andy's office, where Andy is still sitting with reporter Quentin Stone. So anyway, Quentin, I'm sorry. I should have just told you the dumb truth from the very beginning. Quentin tells him that it's no problem. He thinks he can still get a good story out of it. Meanwhile, Bailey, Herb, and Les are entering the lobby, coming back from the university, and Bailey is reading them the the riot act. They walk in on the pig who is painting over the WKRP letters and he turns to face them when they enter. It's the pig. What are you doing here? I am here to have you two fired. The classic mascot showdown. Les tells him that he can't do that. You know nothing, you little twit, just like your news reports. That pig's kind of a jerk. Les finds a small bucket filled with bright yellow paint. What was the color scheme on this lobby? <laughs> Take this, you swine! <laughs> Les tosses it at the pig just as Andy is escorting the reporter, Quentin Stone, out of the bullpen area. Of course, the pig moves to the side and Machine Gun gets the paint in his face and all the way down his front. The reporter, Stone, walks out of the lobby, followed closely behind by Andy, who's apologizing profusely. Yeah, I don't think they're getting that good story now. I I don't think so. It's all done. And that's all done for the episode. What's up for next week, Donna? Next week is Preacher. Andy and Mr. Carlson must deal with an intimidating ex-wrestler, now a religious broadcaster, whose merchandising during his show is getting out of hand. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you want to watch along with us, please make sure to check our show notes. And thanks so much for joining us. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPCast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!